It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, great passage. Uh, I want to look at the name uh, this morning, Hashim, which means the name, which is a great name to have called the name. Uh, and just as a, as a fun, just a little background really quick, Shem, uh, the Hebrew word Shem means name, and so putting the ha in front of it makes it the name, so ha- Hashem. Uh, <clears throat> so just kind of know where we're heading. Uh, it's interesting, uh, as we get into this idea of the name, it really goes back into Exodus chapter 3. And we looked at some of this at the very beginning of the series when we're looking at the name Yahweh and, and Adonai and Elohim. But I just want to do a quick review of a couple of things. Um, as we're coming to these last two studies of our Names of God series, which is super sad to me, uh, I've really enjoyed just walking through all this. Uh, but as we've been walking, <clears throat> getting to the end of this, um, I really kind of want to do a part one, part two kind of a, a message. And so I want to look at the name and then I want to kind of give some outflows of all that uh, in the next one. Uh, but as you get into Exodus chapter 3, this is that scene where Moses is at the bush. And, and listen to what uh, it says. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And then he says this. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name from generation to generation. And uh, we've already looked at this previously with the Yahweh study. Uh, but it's interesting as you get into this, God says, do you know what my forever name is? Do you, do, you, do you know what my memorial name is? It's Yahweh. That his relational, intimate name is Yahweh. Which is, I think is so marvelous and so beautiful. Now, as you work throughout scripture and then history, what you find is that that name uh, has had a variety of um, notations or ways of saying it. Uh, for example, uh, that name, Yahweh, or those four letters, yod heh vav uh, sometimes, sometimes it's translated Jehovah. And um, we got Jehovah, by the way, from taking the name Adonai, which means Lord, and using the vowels of Adonai and putting it into the yod heh vav So that's where the Jehovah name comes from. Uh, sometimes it's called the Tetragrammaton, which means the four letters. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a horrible name to have? What is your name? The four letters. <clears throat> it's just delightful to me. Uh, but what's interesting is, and, and you know this, but because of the command, I want you to keep my name holy. Hey, hey, don't profane my name, which we're going to look at next time. What's interesting is that the Israelites said, okay, we don't want to profane his name. So rather than even using his name, we're actually going to use a replacement. And so they would often use the name Adonai instead of Yahweh. In fact, if you go over to Israel today, or if you, if you listen to a Jew pray or speak, they still will not use this name. They will use Adonai, again, which means Lord or Master. And the reason for that is we want to honor his name. But you recognize that the word Adonai is a title. It is a name, but it's this idea that he is Lord, uh, that he is sovereign, uh, that, that he is master. And what's interesting is as you get into this idea of the name Yahweh, God says, that's my name, that that's my relational name. And 
you, are, you recognize with relationships <clears throat> that when you're actually in intimacy and relationship, you don't call people by their titles, you call people by their names. So Eric does not call Leslie my wife or the wife, right? That is her title. She is the wife, right? She is the mother, but he has relationship with her. And so what does he do? He calls her Leslie or love or one of their other pet names that I don't even want to ponder, okay? <clears throat> Cupcake, you know, whatever, whatever the, I don't know what they use, right? Honey, deer, whatever the food is for the day, right? Cupcake. Isn't that funny? Honey, deer, cupcake. It's like they're great food names. <clears throat> so I love all that to say. Sorry, I was getting distracted. Uh, all that to say, <laughs> I love, I love the name Yahweh. And again, the translation I've been using puts Yahweh back in instead of the Lord. And I, and I love how that sounds because it's relational. Uh, and again, most Bible translations, right? Because the name Yahweh was so revered, right? We would use Adonai typically throughout Israelite history, which is why most English translations have all caps Lord, right? Which means Adonai, right? That he is Lord. And, and I, I think that's beautiful and, I, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's good. But, but for me, again, I'm just speaking for myself. What I began to realize is that there is a, though there is an intimacy with the idea of Lord and there is, it's beautiful, there's something precious about the name Yahweh. That, that as I'm reading through the Psalms and it says that Yahweh is my rock, that that's different than just this title, the Lord. And it just, it makes it more, I don't know, beautiful. It makes it more precious, makes it more intimate. So all that it says, as, as we come to this idea of God's name, this name Yahweh, that God says, that is my forever name. That's my memorial name. And by the way, I, I genuinely think that you can use that name and keep it holy. And you can use that name and not profane it. And we'll talk more about that in the next study. <clears throat> but those are some ways that this word has been translated. One of those, interestingly, is the name Hashem. That they would just say, instead of saying Adonai, sometimes they would just say Hashem, which just means the name. So rather than using Yahweh, rather than even using Adonai, they would just say Hashem, which just means, oh, you know, that name, that, that name, the name. Is that making sense? I've been walking through this, and I, I really hit this hard at the very beginning of the series. But we need to remember that a name is more than just a name. That biblically, when we're talking about a name, a name is symbolic of character or someone's nature or their attributes or the essence of who they are. Or it sometimes speaks of their very presence. That when we use their name, we're talking about the fact that they're there, that they're present with us. Uh, or it's this idea, it's the fullness of their person. So as you get into this then, the, the name, right? When we're talking about God's names, we're not just talking titles. We're not just talking concepts. We're, we're talking about who he is. At the very depth of his being, this is his character. These are his attributes. This is who he is. Which is one of the reasons I've been loving this series, because as you walk through the different names of God, it's a revelation of his heart. It's a revelation of who he is, not just names. So that being said, when we look at this idea of the name, there are several things that we start to realize throughout scripture. For example, Yahweh's name is our protection, our strength, and our help. For example, Psalm 20, verse 7 
Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of Yahweh, our God. Or Psalm 91, I love this at the very end of Psalm 91, this beautiful psalm. It says this, God is speaking. He says, because he has loved me, speaking to the psalmist, therefore I will protect him. I will set him securely on high. Why? Because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in his distress. I will rescue him and I will honor him. Are you starting to, do you kind of see how that his name becomes a place of refuge? His name becomes a place of safety. His name becomes a place of help. And God says, oh, he will call upon me and I will answer him and I will set him securely on high. Why? Because he knows me. He knows my name. He knows my character. He knows my name. He knows me, says the Lord. Or look at Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. Or Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is set securely on high. See, there's something about the name. Uh, Isn't it interesting as as we pray, most of us in our prayers with, in the name of Jesus, amen. So there's something about a name. Uh, in the book of Acts, as, as you read through the book of Acts, here, here's Peter and Paul primarily, and they're doing these miracles, wonders, and signs. And how are they doing the miracles, wonders, and signs? They're doing it in the name of Jesus. Which, again, is more than just titles. It's more than just monikers. What we're talking about nature and life and attribute. Is this making sense? And isn't it beautiful That we find our refuge, we find our security, we find our protection, we find our help in the name of our God. Or there's this idea that that we are to trust in the name or the character and the nature of Yahweh. Uh, In Job, chapter 1, verse 21, Job says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And there's this idea in the undercurrent of the blessing that, that Job is saying, look, I'm, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust in the name. I'm going to trust his character. I'm going to trust his nature. I'm going to trust his attributes. Why? Because he's bigger and stronger and greater than I am. So whether he gives or whether he takes away, all right, I'm in. I'll, I'll trust in the name. Uh, Yahweh's name is a place of blessing. Uh, Psalm 129, verse 8, those who pass by will not say, the blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. There's something about a blessing in the name. Or, or look at Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. We have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. Uh, we know that Yahweh's name is high above and therefore it is praiseworthy. That his name is worthy of praise. So Psalm 148, verse 5 and verse 13. Let them praise the name of Yahweh. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for his name alone is set on high. His splendor is above earth and heaven. Or Psalm 113, verse 1 through 3. Praise Yah. Praise, O slaves of Yahweh. Praise the name of Yahweh. May the name of Yahweh be blessed from now until forever, from the rising of the sun to the setting. The name of Yahweh is to be praised. Isn't this beautiful? 
Or Psalm 122, verse 4, give thanks to the name of Yahweh. Psalm 135, verse 1, praise Yah, praise the name of Yahweh, praise him, O slaves of Yahweh. So there's this idea that there's something about the name. Are you getting this? The name, the name, the name. So if you take that then, and we come into Jesus, do you realize that Jesus has the name? Uh, so let me give you a messianic prophecy. Isaiah 52, verse 6. Therefore, says God, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. There's this beautiful idea. God is speaking through Isaiah, and Isaiah says, do you realize that there is coming a day when everyone's going to know his name? His name's going to be unveiled. That there's going to be a clear revelation of the name. So then listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 6 and verse 26. This is the high priestly prayer. Jesus is talking to the Father. And he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you realize that Jesus is the manifestation of the name? Why? Because he's Yahweh in the flesh. So the name is upon Jesus. Uh, here's what one scholar or commentator, Leon Moore, says. He says, to manifest the name of God is accordingly to reveal the essential nature of God to people. What was Jesus doing? He's God in the flesh. That, that he is the full revelation of the Godhead. That when you see Jesus, you see the reality of who our triune God is. He has the name. He's the name made flesh. And so here's Jesus saying, oh, Father, I have manifested your name. Isn't that beautiful? Here's what D.A. Carson said. He says, I have revealed, or literally I have manifested, doubtlessly sums up all of Jesus' ministry, including the cross that lies just ahead. God's name embodies his character. To reveal God's name is to make God's character known. And it's not hard to detect the hint of a reference to Exodus chapter 3. Carson says, obviously Jesus is hinting back to the Exodus 3, Moses in the bush scene, where God says, my memorial name, my forever name is Yahweh. That's my name. And Jesus says, oh, Father, do you know what I've done? I've revealed it. Why? Because he is Yahweh in the flesh. And he is the revelation of the fullness of this. Do you recognize that Jesus has a name above all other names? There is one name that is high above all other names. What is it? Yahweh. And interestingly, the name Jesus is elevated to that level. Why? Because Jesus is Yahweh. <clears throat> here's, here's, a, here's the promise or here's the declaration in Isaiah 45. So looking ahead, God is speaking and in Exodus 45, verse 23 through 24, God says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. Then listen to this, that to me, 
every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. And then listen to what Paul does. Paul uses Isaiah 45 and says, do you know what that's talking about? Jesus. And in that beautiful hymn of Philippians chapter 2, which is verses 5 or 6, however you want to start that, all the way down through verse 11, listen, listen to what Paul says about this name of our precious Jesus. He says this in Philippians 2 verse 9 through 11. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that beautiful? And so here's Paul going back to Isaiah 45 saying, yeah, that was Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Uh, Last couple days as I've been just reading and studying through all this, um, I was reading through a bunch of just the scholars and trying to figure out, uh, it was interesting to me, I probably read probably 20, 30 commentaries. There's this debate over what name is high above. Like, what, what is the name that is above every other name? Some scholars argue it's the name Jesus, which makes sense in the passage, because when you look at it, uh, they, he bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so s- some scholars say, well, obviously, it's the name itself, Jesus. And other scholars say, well... It actually might be, which I think is beautiful, Lord. Because at the very end, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And what's interesting is in reading all the arguments, I think there's great arguments for both. And what seems to be, this this is my conclusion If I can have a conclusion, I'm still working on my conclusion. I should say that, but here's where I'm at. What seems to be happening is that Paul is saying, Jesus has been given the name Lord and that name Lord, which is now associated with Jesus is above every other name. So whether you want to argue it's Jesus or whether you want to argue it's Lord or Yahweh, Jesus has that name. Regardless, the the point is, or the conclusion, the the end result is the same. Jesus is above everything else. Uh, He is far above. Does that make sense? But I just want to show you the two aspects of this, because I think it's really beautiful. When we talk about the fact that Jesus is Lord, that his name is above all things, that that he is more precious than everything else, do you realize that even in this passage, where every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord, and in my translation, they put it in all caps. And the reason for that is they're trying to harken back to the Old Testament. And there's this idea that Jesus himself is Yahweh. That Yahweh God, that triune God of the Old Testament, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, is now seen physically in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is Yahweh. 
And so I just want to give you a couple quotes from, from two scholars, because I think this really helps flesh this out. Uh, G. Walter Hansen says this, <clears throat> when you look at Isaiah 41 through 45, those chapters, it stresses the uniqueness of the divine name Lord or Yahweh. For example, I am the Lord or Yahweh, your God, Isaiah 41 verse 13. I am the Lord or Yahweh, that is my name, Isaiah 42 verse 8. I, even I, am the Lord, or Yahweh, and apart from him, there is no Savior, Isaiah 43, verse 11. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord, Yahweh, Almighty, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God, Isaiah 44, verse 6. And I am the Lord, or Yahweh, there is no other, Isaiah 45, verse 18. So there's this overemphasis of the divine name in Isaiah 41 through 45. So G. Walter Hansen continues and says this. By quoting Isaiah 45, verse 23, in Philippians chapter 2, the hymn appropriates the unique divine name Lord or Yahweh for Jesus. The parabolic shape of the hymn can be followed by tracing the names or the titles of Jesus. So when you go back to verse 6, the one existing in the form of God goes down to the lowest place by taking the form of a slave and back up to the highest place when God gives Jesus the name that is above every name so that at so sorry so that every tongue will confess that he is Lord that he is Yahweh does that make any sense and there was because Paul uses Isaiah 45 and because of the strong emphasis of the divine name in the book of Isaiah those chapters there is a clear connection that Paul is making by saying when he has a name above all other names and that every tongue will confess that he is Lord, he's not just saying that he's going to be the master. What we're saying is oh, he is Yahweh himself. That's beautiful. Uh, here's what Gordon Fee says on that same idea. He says, on the other hand, most believe that the bestowing on him of the name Lord as the equivalent of Yahweh is how Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. So in other words, the reason he's at the highest place is because he has the name Yahweh. The twofold result clause that makes up our verse 10 and 11 is a direct borrowing of language from Isaiah 45 verse 23, where Yahweh, the Lord, says that before me, the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear or confess that in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. So Fee goes on and says, <clears throat> this emphasis on Yahweh or the Lord as the one unto whom all shall give a, uh, a differential respect seems to certify that what Paul has in mind is none other than the name Yahweh itself, but in his Greek form, the Lord, which has now been given to Jesus. In other words, Jesus has the name Yahweh. Why? He is Lord. Which I think is kind of what Peter's doing in Acts chapter 2 verse 36. He's playing on that idea. So in the sermon right after Pentecost, Peter stands up and says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I think he's doing two things. One, I do think he's talking about the fact that he's to be master and Lord. But he's talking to a Jewish audience. They're down at the temple. They're about to be baptized. Remember this whole scene? Pentecost has come. And here they are at the temple, and it's interesting that Peter says to a Jewish community that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you realize he's talking to a group of people who don't use the name Yahweh. They use the name Adonai, which means 
the Lord. So it seems like there's a fun play on words that what Peter is saying is, do you recognize that our Jesus, whom you crucified, is Yahweh and he's Christ. He is the Messiah. That one that we've been waiting for, that's Jesus. That Yahweh himself is our Messiah and you crucified him. And there's like this fun play on words of what Peter is doing. Is that making sense? So all that to be said, there seems like in the undercurrent of this whole thing, that there's this point toward Jesus himself has the name Yahweh. Why? Because he is Yahweh in the flesh. But the other side of this, which is the other argument, which I think is still holds true, <clears throat> is Jesus is the sole master or Lord. In other words, Jesus as Lord stands in direct opposition to Caesar as Lord. So I, I, I mentioned this at the very beginning of the, of the series when we we're talking about Yahweh and Adonai. But when you look at the Roman day, one of the ways that the Caesars would be greeted or would be called as a title would be Kurios or, or Lord. That they were seen as God. That they were seen as Lord. They were seen as the master. And everyone in the Roman Empire was seen as the person beneath or the slave or the servant. So you realize then, as you're working through the book of Acts and then as you work through the epistles, every time we say that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is master, what we are declaring is that Caesar is not. Because there's only one ruler. There's only one Lord. And in this culture, to not say Caesar is Lord, you realize is a uh, insurrection. It's, it's treasonous, which is part of the reason why they kept getting killed. Why? Because for me to make Jesus my Lord is putting me in direct opposition to the fact that I am declaring that Caesar is not Lord. In other words, there's only one Lord. Choose. Choose who you're going to serve. You can choose Caesar. You can choose Jesus. You can't have both. And so what you see in the early church then is that one of the declarations of the soul is that when you believed, you were standing up and declaring, oh, Jesus Christ is Lord. Meaning what? I've severed my ties to the earthly system. And now I'm making Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. That he is going to rule and reign. So uh, again, here's G. Walter Hansen. He says, consideration of the context for Paul's letter to the Philippians provides another reason for the view that the name Lord is the name that God gave Jesus. In our Roman colony, Philippians would hear the acclamation that Jesus is Lord as a shocking allusion to the declaration of the Roman imperial cult that Caesar is Lord. In the ideology of the imperial cult, Jupiter and the gods gave divine authority and divine names to Augustus Caesar. In the theology of the hymn of Christ, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, God gave the divine name to Jesus so that he will be the Lord, acclaimed and worshiped by all. By quoting this hymn, Paul presents the exaltation of Jesus as Lord in language that reflects and subverts the Roman imperial cult. In other words, he's saying you can't have two lords. Either Caesar will be Lord or Jesus will be Lord. Pick. And Paul stands up in Philippians 2 and says, Whoa, do you recognize, if let me just read this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on, uh, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Do you realize everyone will come to the point where they will bend a knee and they will give utterance with their lips that it's not Caesar. It's not our world system. It's not whatever the current in vogue thing is or in fashion of the day. That Jesus himself is Lord and Lord alone. And do you realize this is, I love this, in verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Everyone is going to bow. Well, who? Look at this. Who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Uh, and scholars have said that you realize the emphasis of that is we're talking angelic, we're talking demonic, and we're talking human. Everyone's bowing. Every, every knee's going to bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord. That's great news, folks. I look at what Psalm 95 or 6 or 8 says. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The question is not, are you going to bow? You will bow. The question actually is, when are you going to bow? Will, will you walk in humility and bend your knee now, or will you be forced into submission and bend your knee later? But every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Uh, Romans 10, 9, listen to this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you realize that an element of salvation, if you're going to be saved, you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. Uh, there, there's a big, probably several decades ago now, uh, there was this big movement uh, going around the church, which was the Savior Lord language. In other words, you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but at some point you should make Jesus your Lord. You're, that's not possible, folks. If you make Jesus your Savior, he is your Lord. And if you don't want him as your Lord, you don't want him as your Savior. Because he can't be one without the other. Does that make sense? So this isn't come to Jesus and be saved, and then later, hey, come to Jesus and let him rule your life. This is, if you want Jesus, he has to be Lord of your life. That he is both Savior and Lord. And so I love what Paul says here in Romans 10, that you have to declare that there has to be a change, a disposition of your heart, that you are severing ties with the world, and now Jesus himself is Lord, ruler, master of your life. Or look at what 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And there's this has to come by a working of him. Now you realize, as a conclusion of this then, <clears throat> if Jesus Christ is Lord, well, that, what that implies then is that I am his slave. I've mentioned this before, but when you look through the New Testament, uh, the number one title given to a Christian is not Christian. I mean, Christian is used, but it's, 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 it was a derogatory term. It wasn't used very often. Uh, it's not son or daughter. Uh, it's not uh, brother. Do you know that the number one term used for a Christian in the New Testament is actually slave? And it's because every time we declare Jesus is Lord, what you are declaring is that if he's Lord, I'm, I'm his servant. I'm his slave. 
that, that I'm in a posture of humility. Does that make sense? And so by just declaring, going back to the Philippians 2 thing, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the implication then is every tongue is going to have to confess, yeah, I'm actually his slave. And I know that's not popular language today, but the word doulos is more than just a servant language. It's slave language. And that, I know that's awkward, but when you actually get a hold of that idea biblically, it becomes so beautiful that, that we are the servants or the slaves of Christ Jesus. In fact, this is one of the things that Paul would boast about. In, in his letter to Romans, he introduces himself this way, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. Do you realize he was an apostle? And he could have easily just been like, I have position. But do you, do you hear how he introduces himself? Yes, I'm an apostle, but I'm a slave. Or, or look at what he says in Galatians 1.10. He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. In other words, because I'm a slave of Christ, I'm not trying to please you. I have a greater master. It is the Lord. My God, his name is Jesus. And because he is Lord, I'm not trying to please you. I'm trying to please him. Uh, look at how he starts to introduce himself. In Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Titus 1.1, Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Peter does it in, in 2 Peter. Simon Peter, a slave, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Jude, in Jude 1, says, Jude, a slave of Christ Jesus. In other words, this wasn't like a, oh, bummer, I guess I'll be a slave. This was, oh, do you know who I am? I, I get to be a slave of the best master in the universe. I get the privilege of being his servant. Do you, do you realize that you will be a slave of someone? The question is not, will you be a slave? The question actually is, who are you going to obey? As Paul says in Romans 6, verse 16, do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves or yielding yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? In other words, Paul says you get one of two options. You will be a slave to something. You'll either be a slave of sin or you'll be a slave of Christ. So the question is not, are you going to be a slave? You are a slave. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to obey? Now, if you understand this idea that Paul saw slavery to Christ as the greatest privilege, he saw his role as, yes, I'm an apostle of the Gentiles, but wow, I get to be a slave of the king. And what a privilege that is. Do you realize it's no wonder that he could write this? Like Philippians 1, verse 20 through 21 where Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ, even now as always, will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or you could look at Galatians 2.20 or you can just start going down through the list. Did you realize that Paul sought as a privilege for him to give his entire life unto Jesus? That whether I live or whether I die, I want Jesus to be magnified in my life. I want him to rule. Why? He is the Lord and Master. 
So here's my question for us. Will I give my good master, whom I love, my ear? If you, if you know the Exodus passage in Exodus 21, this idea that if you sell yourself off into slavery, and at the end of the seven years, and you're freed, here, here's the conclusion. If the slave plainly says, well, I love my master, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. Then his master or his Lord shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. And so there's this idea that, imagine this, uh, because of some financial situation, I have to sell myself as a slave to someone else. And over the course of the years, under my servitude, I realize that, you know what? I have a great master. In fact, I actually really love my master. He is so good. He is so kind that when I'm set free, if I come to the conclusion, you know what? My life is actually better now as a slave under a good master than it was when I was trying to run my own life. So the rule was, if you came to that conclusion, you should go to your master and say, Master, man, I love you so much. It has been such a privilege to work with you. It would be my greatest joy to continue serving you. Why? Because you're a good master. Then that master or that Lord would take his ear to the doorpost and put an awl and give him a gauged ear. And the symbol was that the right ear then is given and consecrated unto that Lord. And now I only have ear for one voice, the voice of my master. Do you recognize that Jesus Christ is our Lord? And he is a good Lord. He's a good master. He's a great shepherd. And it would be completely logical and reasonable for you to say, you know what? When I try to run my life, it only ends in death. When I try to run my life, it only ends in chaos and destruction and sin. Do you know what I should do? I should give my life totally unto the good master. And I should actually consecrate my ear spiritually on the doorpost and allow him to gauge my ear as a sign that from this point forward, my ear belongs to one voice, his. Or if I may change the Metaphor, Jesus in John 10 says, I am a great shepherd. The sheep know my voice. That they have a voice for one, or they have an ear for one voice. They don't follow some hired hand. The, the sheep are not going to go follow some random voice. Why? Because they have an ear for one voice, the voice of the shepherd. Do you realize that is our Jesus? And that we are to literally give our ear, we are to give our submission, we are to give the entirety of our lives and say, Lord, here, here's my life, do what you want with me. That, that as a good Lord and master, I trust you. And so if you, want, if you want to send me to the foreign field, if you want to use me in my backyard, if, if you want to use me, here, here's my life. Take my life, let it be. Lord, Lord take my life and my limbs, spill my my, my blood if necessary. But Lord, may my life be for your glory and for your use. And so Lord, however you choose to use this little life, this precious little time that I have, it's yours. Waste it if you want to waste it. Spill it if you want to spill it. But Lord, it's yours. I give it to you. 
Do you realize that is the reasonable thing a slave should say to his master? That we don't dictate the terms. We just say, yes, Lord. That we have a predecided yes <clears throat> that is always ready to hear. We're always ready to obey. We, we are always ready to engage. We're always ready to, he is Lord. Will, will I submit? Will I listen? Will I obey? Will, will I give up the rights to myself and let him be Lord of my life? And as the New Testament writers say, oh, this is, this is one of the greatest privileges you'll ever have. And yes, it's true, your sons and daughters. That's true. You're adopted in. And so you have relationship and Paul, here's Paul saying, man, do you realize I'm an apostle? I'm a son. I've been adopted in. I, I, I have high standing. And yet I'm still a servant and a slave. There's a tension. There's a twofold reality in this. And there's beautiful, there's beauty in that tension. That I am a son, but I'm a slave. And whatever he says, yes, Lord, I'm in. Let me give you one other quick idea. <clears throat> Do you realize that his name really is above every other name? That he's in a position of authority and power. That there is no one greater than our precious Jesus. No one is greater than God. Um, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says to the disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Peter in 1 Peter 3.22 says that Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected, subjected to him. Do you realize everything is under the feet of our precious Savior? He is in authority over all things. He is in the headship position. He is head over all. He has the authority. Why? He's the greatest. His name, his character, his life, his person is above every other. Not just a name, not just a title. We're talking his life is above every other life. His character is above every other character. His holiness is above every other holiness, other measure of holiness. That, that, that his, his person is above every other person. He is above. Uh, listen to Philippians again. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Paul says, therefore... God also highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at that name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That, that word highly exalted, it's really fascinating. It means super exalted. Not just exalted, but like woo exalted. Uh, and by the way, this is the only time in the New Testament that word shows up. That Jesus is super exalted. Uh, it means to bestow honor or status far beyond what is usual in magnitude or degree. It's conceived of in terms of lifting something up to an uncommonly high position. And there was, it's like hyperbole. Like this is ridiculous. Like that he's not just above, he is, woo, he's above. Like I, I took a baseball and I threw it up. It's not that. It's I took a baseball and I threw it to Mars. You're like, that's impossible. That's hyperbole. That's the point, right? That he is so lifted up, that he is so exalted. He is super hyperbolic exalted. 
It's like over the top. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. There's no comparison. There's no competition. He's above everything. Not beautiful. Our Jesus is super exalted. His name is so far above every other name. It's, you can't even see the competition. He is above. Uh, listen uh, again to this idea that in Philippians it says that every knee will bow, right? On earth and under earth and all that stuff. Do you realize that all of creation, human, angelic, and demonic, will pay homage and honor to the magnified and exalted Jesus? He is so high. He is so lifted up. Everything is under his authority. Everything will bow its knee. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord, that he's above all. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, I pray that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us, who believe according to the working of his might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now listen to this. This is the position that Jesus is in. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Isn't that beautiful? He is far above every name that is to be named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. No one compares. There's no competition. He is great. He is above. He has the authority. He is, has the name. Can I ask you, have you submitted to that name? The one who is Yahweh himself, the one who is Lord and master, the one who has a name above every other name. Have you bent a knee and said, yes, Lord? Or as Colossians 1.18 declares, have you made him preeminent in your life? Does he hold first place? Because if he is greater than all things, why wouldn't he have first place? Why would we turn to substitutes? Do you have a ready ear for our Savior? Where it's not just, here I am, but here I am and I'm ready to obey. Here I am and I'm longing to be used by you. Lord, take my life and spill it and spend it however you choose for the king and for the kingdom. Lord, take my little life and do something with it. Do you realize that as a slave, you don't get to dictate the terms. You don't get to dictate your hours. You don't get to dictate the position. You just smile and say, oh, it's a privilege. Yes, I'll be happy to do that. Well, what if he calls me to some dangerous land? Yes. Well, what if he calls me to do the thing I don't like more than anything else? Yes. What if he calls me to do something I really like? Yes. Why don't you say yes and have a predetermined yes where you're not going to wait to hear his voice and wait to hear his command and then decide whether or not you're going to obey. What if we all just had that posture of saying yes? And even before the words got out of his mouth, the answer's already yes. Uh, Nathan, would you mind? Yes! What do you want? Hey, Nathan, would you go? Yes! Because that is the proper response of a slave. And do you realize that giving our ear to the Lord, to consecrate our ear to him, to, to come under in this servant-hearted service unto our king is the greatest privilege of the universe.
And if that was true, if we actually saw him high and lifted up, if we actually saw his name as above every other name, not just a name, but who he is. If we actually saw that, do you realize you could not help but worship? You, you couldn't stop yourself from worship. Because you begin to realize, wow, the one whom I love, the one who lives inside of me through his spirit, the one that I get to spend my life with and eternity with, he is so good. He is above all else. Our culture is so wickety-whack. You know, you, you see some famous celebrity and you realize everyone oohs and ahs and looks and right, rushes over and tries to, you know, have a handshake and, <clears throat> hey, will you sign this? And will you, do you realize that there is no competition with Jesus? He is so far above, it would make the greatest athlete or the greatest pop star or the greatest celebrity, it, it would make him look like dirt. And you realize we, we, we ooh and awe for the people around us, and yet we have a hard time giving any worship and adoration to our king. Do you know why that is? I think it's because we don't actually know him. Because if we actually saw him high and lifted up, and if we saw him as he is, you couldn't help but adore him. You could not help but worship. Let me just close with two verses from the Psalms. Psalm 99, verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. What if we, what if we didn't just believe that? What if we lived that? Let them praise your great and awesome name. Or Psalm 145, verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Would you see him high and lifted up? Would you see him as he is? We often give the illustration that, you know, if you see a sunset, you can't help but just go, whoa. It just, it elicits response. It elicits worship. It elicits that adoration. Why? Because you've beheld something amazing and beautiful. I think one of the reasons we have a hard time worshiping is we don't actually stare at Jesus. We actually don't look at him. We don't, we don't ponder him from the word and we're not talking to him throughout the day. And, and so therefore someone stands up and says, all right, let's worship. And it's like, they may be in a posture ready. Maybe they're like looking at the sunset back there and you're all looking at this blank wall going, okay, let's sing to the sunset. Oh, lovely sunset. Wonderful sunset. Do you know how hard it is to go, whoa, on a sunset if you're not looking at the sunset? And people can tell you how beautiful the sunset is, but it's so different if you actually behold the sunset. You can start calling all your friends up going, look outside, it's amazing. You're grabbing your phone, you're taking the pictures, and what, you're, going, you're oohing and aahing, why? Because you've beheld. So can I encourage you, if, if you have a hard time worshiping, if you notice that that praise doesn't bubble forth within you, maybe the problem isn't him. And it's not his position because you can't get any higher. He's already super exalted. I think the problem is we just haven't seen him. And maybe what we need to do is turn our gaze heavenward and behold him. And as we behold him and we realize that he has the name, 
that he is Yahweh, that his name is greater than any other name in this age or the one to come, that, that nothing is ever greater. And if you would actually see him as he is, something you couldn't help yourself, something would bubble up within you and you would have to worship because he's worthy. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are Yahweh. That you, the triune God, took on flesh and now the name Jesus, our precious Savior, is the name. And you have a name that is high above that Jesus, you are Yahweh himself, that you are the Lord and master, and there's none that compare with you. Caesar has nothing on Jesus. Lord, can we realize that you are a good master? And it is totally reasonable for us as your servants to lend and give our ears to you so that the only voice that we heed is yours. Lord, could we, as a sheep of your pasture, be so tight with you that just as the sheep know the voice of the shepherd and will follow the shepherd wherever he goes, Lord, could we know you so well that we would follow you wherever you go. And Lord, you are not quiet. You have given us a clear enunciation through your word. It is your voice crying out, Lord, I pray that you would posture our hearts, that we would, we would calm in humility and, that, and that, that you would bend our knees this side of eternity and that we would long to serve you. That, Lord, that we don't have to be forced into submission to, de- to declare that you are Lord and Savior, but, Lord, that we humbly do it and, and cry forth, Lord, take my life. And in the greatest privilege on planet Earth or the universe, Lord, let me be your servant Lord, would you lead and direct my life? And Lord, could somehow I see you high and lifted up? Could I see you super exalted? Could I see that there is none that compare with you? Lord, could I, could I somehow see you as you are with the name above every other name? Because Lord, I'm convinced that if I saw you as you are, I couldn't help but worship. I couldn't help but give myself in totality to, to you. That if I actually saw you and I understood your character and your nature, I would, I would have a predecided yes. That before you said anything, I would just say, yes, Lord, I'm, I'm in. Whatever you want. So, Lord, could you, could you remove the veil from our eyes and somehow let us see you, behold you afresh? Could somehow we see your glory? Could somehow we, we see you high and lifted up? Could somehow we see your name. And Lord, I don't want to be forced to worship. I I just want to gladly, willingly behold and worship and adore you. And so, Lord, that's what we want to do this morning. We, We don't want to just sing songs about you. We want to worship you. Lord, we love you. Just give you the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. 
At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.